Greetings, this is podcast number 45 of Blast the Right. I'm Jack Clark from TheRationalRadical.com, www.TheRationalRadical.com. Today, the topic will be right-wing policies that kill America's coal miners. Oh, let's get right into it. I repeat quite often that right-wingers invariably cause increased human misery, suffering, pain, and death. Today, I'll present a perfect example of precisely the type of such havoc that ensues when right-wingers achieve power. We've recently witnessed the dual tragedies of the Sago mine explosion in January, which killed 12 West Virginia coal miners, and then the Harlan County mine explosion in May, which killed five Kentucky coal miners. Many of the miners survived the actual explosions, but died from lack of oxygen. Mine disasters happen, right? Nothing the right wing did to help cause these, correct? Wrong. Right-wing actions have significantly increased the likelihood of mining disasters and decreased the likelihood that miners will survive such incidents. Put more bluntly, the bloody fingerprint of the right-wing is stamped all over the bodies of these blasted-apart and asphyxiated coal miners. Listen to Peggy Cohn daughter of Fred Ware, a miner who perished at Sago, and Deborah Hamner, whose husband, Junior Hamner, also died at Sago. When mine operators are reporting millions of dollars of profit and paying minimal fines, this is a problem. When 12 men who were trapped underground and couldn't communicate to the ground, this is a problem. When these men, my father and the rest of the crew, had to share self-contained rescues, this is a problem. You know, only one miner died as a result of that explosion at the Sago Mine on January 2nd. Twelve survived, and twelve should have been able to walk out alive. Why they didn't, I believe, is a failure of our system. Of course, the system is a euphemism for the Bush administration, since it's run the system for the last several years. My sources for this segment are two articles from The Nation magazine, one by Eric Reese and the other by Peter Dreyer, a New York Times editorial, and the website of the Democratic members of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. You'll also hear, interspersed throughout the podcast, family members of miners who were killed, along with the United Mine Workers Union president and two congressmen who are trying to legislate protection for the miners. How bad is the situation? In all of 2005, 22 miners lost their lives. That's too many. But in just the first five months of 2006, 44 miners have already died on the job, most of them in the coal industry. 
We're witnessing the highest miners' death rate in 20 years. Repeat, under the administration of George W. Bush, we're witnessing the highest miners' death rate in 20 years. There are four main areas where Bush administration actions have created conditions which inevitably lead to more disasters and lower survival rates for the miners. 1. Cutting the budget, staff, and enforcement efforts of the Mine Safety and Health Administration, MSHA. 2. Appointing mining company executives to oversee their own industry. 3. Opposing stronger mining safety and health regulations, even rolling back some of them. And 4. Punishing MSHA employees who try to correct dangerous mining conditions. Underfunding, cronyism, going backwards on safety, and punishing government agency employees trying to do their job. That could well describe the template for right-wing strategy in many industries. So as I get into the details to follow, keep in the back of your mind that, however outrageous what you're hearing is, it's not limited to this one industry. Imagine it happening nationwide. Anywhere and everywhere the federal government is supposed to exercise its power to enhance the safety of workers and as that silly little document that the right likes so much to ignore, the Constitution says, promote the general welfare. We want to make safety here today first priority so no other family has to go what we're going through. The owners, if they had a family member in, in the mines, and I'm sure they would be the first ones to jump on the bandwagon with us and say, well, we need safety. but. You know, all they think is the dollar. That was Virginia Moore, fiancé of Terry Helms, another Sago victim. Budget slashing. Every year that George W. Bush has been in office, he has sought cuts in real dollar terms of the MHSA budget. Since 2001, MHSA staff has been reduced by over 7%, including 100 safety officers. And that's not all that's down under Bush. The number of fines, the size of fines, the percentage of fines collected, the number of criminal prosecutions, the number of convictions, all less than during the Clinton era. What kind of people exercising decision-making authority at the MHSA and the associated Federal Mine Safety and Health Review Commission would behave in such egregious fashion. Here's a list of their names. David Lariski, John Kaler, Mark Ellis, Richard Stickler, Michael Duffy, Stanley Subaleski, Michael Young. Now, all these gentlemen have something in common. What is it? By their names, they don't seem to be of the same ethnic background. I don't think they all went to the same college. Of course, what they have in common is they're former mining industry executives, 
brought in as senior officials by the right-wingers to regulate the mining industry, to, in effect, regulate themselves. No independent voices with the public good in mind need apply. Let's see. We've got executives from Energy West Mining, Cypress Minerals, Amax Mining, Peabody Coal, BHP Minerals, Massey Energy, and just for good measure, the former legal counsel for the American Mining Congress. The perfect group, in right-wingers' eyes, to run what is, in everyone else's eyes, supposed to be an independent regulatory body. Oh, it's a fine group of men. One of them, appointed by Bush to head the MSHA, David Lurisky, quote, was forced to resign in 2004 after CBS's 60 Minutes reported that under his direction, the agency had improperly awarded no-bid, single-source contracts to companies with ties to him and one of his assistants. Close quote. Uh, let me double-check something here. No, Lurisky did come from Energy West Mining, and had been an executive or lobbyist in the mining industry his whole life, I thought, what with the no-bid single-source contracts, maybe he came from Halliburton. My husband wrote in his last note to me, we don't hear any attempts at drilling or rescue. The section is full of smoke and fumes, so we can't escape. Randall McCloy, the lone survivor of the Sago disaster, wrote in his letter to the families of the victims, at least four of the self-rescuers did not function. He continued, there was no response from the surface when they, the trap miners, attempted to signal their location. And it's heartbreaking when he wrote, we began to accept our fate. That was Deborah Hamner again, wife of Junior Hamner, a miner who died at Sago. Fittingly, let's go on to regulations about health, safety, and rescue. The first Bush administration deadly sin here is that when they took office, they canceled the implementation of stronger regulations that had been approved under Bill Clinton. Representative George Miller of California is the ranking Democrat on the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. It oversees worker health and safety. Miller is a leader in Congress on the mine safety issue. Let's listen to him answer a question from Paula Zahn of CNN. But let me get this straight. The Darby mine has had 254 safety violations since 2001, and since May 1st alone, it has been cited three times for allowing illegal accumulations of combustible materials underground. Why hasn't this mine been held accountable? It can't be just the feds. Well, Paula, unfortunately, that's, that's what's taken place here. The fact of the matter is, when the Bush administration came to Washington, D.C. in 2000, there were, there were regulations at, at MSHA ready to be put on the books that dealt with oxygen supply, that dealt with mine safety, that dealt with communications equipment. 
that dealt with uh, how mines are operated and the detection of the buildup of gases and dust. So all of this uh, was there to be done. The Bush administration withdrew those regulations, put their cronies and their friends from the industry in charge of it, said that the mines could voluntarily enforce the law, and then they, let, they just left it alone. And now we've had a series of accidents that betray that policy. The second deadly sin of the Bush administration is that not only did they cancel a previously agreed upon strengthening of mine safety regulations, but they then went on to weaken the obviously already inadequate rules regarding ventilation in coal mines and even proposed changes to increase the amount of allowable coal dust that miners breathe. The third deadly Bush sin is that even after the Sago disaster in January, when the inadequacy of the protections in place became glaringly and tragically obvious, they tried to block any strengthening of safety requirements. At his Senate confirmation hearing to be head of MSHA to replace the no-bid crook Lariski who had to resign, Bush nominee Richard Stickler claimed that the mine safety laws were adequate as is. There was no need for tougher laws. Eric Reese in The Nation calls this testimony, quote, an astonishing display of indifference, close quote, to say the least. The right-wing controlled Congress followed suit opposing proposed legislation by the Democrats and the United Mine Workers to make the mines safer and the mining companies more accountable. What we are hearing tonight from the lone survivor's family is absolutely outrageous. They say he told them that his emergency oxygen supply ran out in five minutes. He then passed out for two and a half hours. And when he came to, literally crawled on his belly to find fresh air. Whose fault is that? Well, I think that's the fault of the uh, of the federal government. We now have a number of things that we can do to uh, change the experience, both in preventing an explosion in the mine and preventing an accident in the mine, but also for those miners who survive the initial explosion. There is now communications equipment that's available. Clearly, uh, they need better oxygen equipment and oxygen for a longer period of time. Just listen to what the right-wingers in Congress opposed as provided for in the Protecting America's Miners Act. I'll go over this legislation in a bit of detail so you can fully comprehend the depth of right-wing depravity. To help miners survive an underground disaster, and I'm quoting here from a summary of the act prepared by the bill's sponsors, the act calls for atmospheric detection and warning systems to alert miners to dangerous levels of harmful and explosive gases, two-way messaging systems to allow communications between miners and the surface, caches of self-rescuers, that is, individual oxygen supplies for escape, underground refuges, chambers equipped with oxygen, food, and water, meeting criteria based on past experience in the U.S. and abroad to give shelter to miners unable to escape from a mine while they await rescue, and equipping each miner with a tracking device to facilitate rescue. How could anyone oppose those? Or these? 
to increase the likelihood that miners will survive an underground disaster, the legislation also, and this is my summary, requires stronger seals to shield miners from danger zones and requires mine rescue teams to be familiar with the mines they're responsible for and to be close by within an hour of smaller mines and on site at larger mines. Anything wrong with those measures? Other provisions of the bill would strengthen protection against exposure to coal dust to eliminate completely black lung disease, which younger coal miners continue to be diagnosed with. Give families the right to request that an agency other than MSHA conduct an investigation of any accident. And finally, increase from $60,000 to $1 million the maximum fine for mining companies that engage in a pattern of violations, as well as give the Secretary of Labor the power to pull miners completely out of any such mine. Penalties would also be increased all the way down the line. Until now, the mine operators considered the low fines just a cost of doing business. Again, how could you oppose these measures? What is the possible basis? We don't want miners to be too safe. We'll make a few bucks less. We like to see those we're supposed to protect needlessly suffer and die. I'm waiting for an answer, all you right-wingers out there. Okay, so far we've got budget slashing, crony appointing, and safety regulation opposing. Let's go on to the last element of the Bush sins relating to the mining industry. Aren't there any good people left in MSHA trying to correct unsafe conditions and oppose lax enforcement? Of course there are, and they're dealt with in the typical Bushian right-wing way punishment. For example, the Martin County Coal Corporation had been warned that a huge toxic coal slurry impoundment pond was unstable and would eventually fail. But Martin ignored the warnings, the impoundment did fail, and 300 million gallons of this toxic waste poured into Kentucky and West Virginia waters. An MSHA official named Jack Spadaro recommended that the Martin Company be cited for criminal negligence. But the crook Lariski held repeated meetings with the CEO of Martin's parent company and then rejected Spadaro's recommendation. So Spadaro refused to sign the final report. Lariski retaliated by changing the lock on Spadaro's office door then unsuccessfully tried to fire him on phony charges. Lariski finally arranged to transfer Spadaro out of the area. Spadaro chose to quit instead. Another example involving the undue influence wielded over MHSA operations by one Bob Murray. He's a coal mine owner 
who donated $75,000 in personal funds to Republican campaigns and whose political action committees additionally contributed a whopping $622,000 to the GOP. Murray complained in May 2002 directly to Lariski that, quote, safety enforcement at his mines was too strict. Within days of Murray's meeting with Lariski, two MSHA officials were transferred away from Murray's mines. Close quote. More Murray wrongdoing. Quote, a few months later, Murray told other MSHA officials that if enforcement didn't loosen up at his Powhatan mine in Ohio, which had the worst safety record in Mine District 3, he would put District Manager Tim Thompson in his sights. Within months, Thompson was transferred out of Murray's district. Two weeks after the transfer, in January 2003, an explosion at the district's McElroy Coal Company killed three miners. Close quote. I've just presented quite an earful, haven't I? Why isn't the general public aware of the information I've just presented to you? Because the corporate-owned mainstream media, as usual, doesn't connect the dots. Peter Dreyer in The Nation magazine investigated and found that, even though in reporting on the Harlan County mining disaster, many newspapers told their readers that mining deaths were way up in 2006, quote, only one major daily, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and in only one sentence, connected this trend to administration actions, close quote. The men go into these mines to produce coal for the United States. Now it is the responsibility of the United States to protect these men. The United States government owes it to these hardworking miners to pass legislation to keep them safe. That was Peggy Cohn again, daughter of the perished miner Fred Ware. What she's saying is, we're all using this product, so we're all responsible. Or as Eric Ries puts it in The Nation, quote, Now that the last prayers have been offered up for the men who lost their lives in the mines, I think it's time we get down to the hard work of taking responsibility for their deaths. Because Appalachian coal is shipped across the country, almost anyone who uses electricity at home or work must acknowledge part of the responsibility. Close quote. Yes, you and I, all of us, use this product, so we all have an especial responsibility to ensure that men don't needlessly die producing it for us. Earlier we cited some campaign donations by coal mine owner Bob Murray. We shouldn't leave this subject without noting that on a national level, the Center for Responsive Politics calculates that since the year 2000, the coal mining industry contributed $10.7 million to federal campaigns, 
And surprise, 88% went to Republicans. As a Martin County resident, Mick McCoy justifiably concluded, quote, The watchdogs of the people have become the guard dogs of the coal industry. Close quote. Let's close by considering where are we now with all this? Well, when the right-wing Congress wouldn't act after this year's first disaster at Sago, the Democratic governor of West Virginia, Joe Manchin, decided he had to do something at the state level. He started strengthening West Virginia mine safety regulations. This is federalism of the type right-wingers don't like the kind that results in improvements in the lives of ordinary people. After this year's second disaster in Harlan County, even the Republican-controlled Congress was impelled to act. But it was quite late in the game. Representative George Miller again. It's been 134 days since an explosion at the Sago Mine in Upshur County, West Virginia, killed 12 mine workers. Yet, it's not until late yesterday that we got word that the House of Representatives would finally start acting on legislation that could help prevent another horrific tragedy in the nation's minds. While we are, while we are encouraged by this news, there is no reason for it to have come this late. After Janet Jackson's so-called wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl in 2004, it took the House of Representatives just 40 days to approve an anti-indecency legislation. I bring that up as an example to make one simple point. The House can act quickly when it wants to, and in this case, it should have. That's right. You want to infuriate a right-winger to action? Show him a breast. That'll get the old legislative machinery in high gear. But 12 dead miners? Oh, no need to do anything about that now. Or indeed ever, if the right can get away with it. But this time they couldn't get away with it. After the second mining disaster of 2006, right-wingers like cockroaches who can't stand it when you turn on the light, right-wingers were compelled to scurry away from their usual deadly policy positions because the public attention became too intensely focused on them. What will undoubtedly be all the more galling will be that, in typical right-wing fashion, Bush and others in his administration, as well as Republicans running for office across the nation, will travel to coal country and brag about the bill they passed and take credit for it. Even though the reality is, as you've just heard in this podcast, these right-wingers have been tirelessly devoted to the exact opposite goal of weaker safety regulations and less company accountability. Until the second accident forced them to reverse course. It is not too much to ask in the United States of America when a worker goes to work, he should expect to come home, and these family members should expect to see them once they go out the door with that lunch bucket in their hand. That was Cecil Roberts, president of the Mine Workers Union. Or as Representative Nick Joe Rahal, Democrat of West Virginia, 
a leader in the fight for mine safety, put it. It's a statistical trend that should shame America, a country in which workplace safety is not only a tradition, but also a basic value. As I have told the widows of some of these coal miners, as we stood at their loved one's coffin, their loved ones shall not have died in vain. Unfortunately, workplace safety is not a basic value to right-wingers. It has to be forced down their throats by public opinion. When the death toll from right-wing policies becomes too high for the mass media to ignore, and thus too visible for the public to tolerate. At the very beginning of this segment, I said I would present a perfect example of how right-wingers cause increased human misery, suffering, pain, and death. To all of you who weren't convinced of that back then, is it clear to you now? And what do you right-wingers out there have to say for yourselves? Well, that'll about wrap it up for today. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend about Blast the Right. There's a one-click link to send this page to a friend on the podcast homepage. A special shout-out to everyone listening on Live365.com. Why don't you come on over to the podcast homepage and subscribe for free? Then you can download and listen to any podcast anytime you want. Don't forget to vote on podcastalley.com for Blast the Right. You can do so with a one-click link on the podcast homepage. Here's a quick word from the Progressive Podcast Network. Hi, this is Nancy of Wake Up AM, Wake Up America podcast. Kathy, Meg, and I are proud to be members of the Progressive Podcast Network. Check out all of the great podcasts over at newmediarevolution.org. Music credits. The only music today will be what we close with. It'll be a little bit of Taking My Country Back by Honky Tonkers for Truth. Links to all the music I play on Blast the Right can be found on my podcast homepage. Links to all the statistics and quotations I use can be found on my data resources page. Both of them are linked to off the main podcast homepage. Keep all that great email coming in. Write to rational at adelphia.net. You can also call and leave a comment for me to play on Blast the Right. Dial 310-933-5891 and leave your message or Skype me at Jack from Blast the Right and leave the message there. So, until next time, I'll sign off and say I love you all, including all you right-wing misguided souls. We had a bundle in the treasury drawer More than there had ever been before But every day we're drowning deeper in debt Maybe four years should be all you get Then you gave tax breaks to the millionaires And you tried to make the working man pay But you can't tax a man when his job's not there Now look at where we are today Hey, I'm taking my country back 
watching you and I don't like how you've been treating my star. 